I want to talk to you a little bit here this morning about movies. How many people are fans of movies here? Or uh, TV shows that you watch in succession and like, uh, you know, you, you really like to go on a, even a binge to watch them and like you really get into them. Or maybe for a very small percentage, it's books that are just riveting you, right? Any book people here that you start one? All right, there's like eight of you, much more in the movie spectrum, which is what I would expect. But I want to talk to you a little bit about the importance of the end of the movie. Maybe you've been in that situation where the popcorn line's a little bit too long and you kind of miss the beginning of a movie and, you know, it's your 10 or 15 minutes and wait, what happened? You're whispering to the person next to you, annoying the people behind you. That's tough. But for the most part, you can kind of catch up and see what's going on. But if you miss the end of the movie or if the end of the movie is really confusing, that can probably be one of the most difficult things in life, right? Anybody ever experienced that? You know, maybe you're watching the movie Inception. I don't know if you remember that one. And that final scene where that top is spinning and spinning and you're like, oh, 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 it starts to wobble. You're like, is it real or is this just deep down in some layer of dream? And then all of a sudden it cuts. You'd be like, no, was that real or not real? I don't know. Or maybe it's a movie like The Life of Pi. Do you remember that one? Right? Where some crazy tigers in there with... You know, Richard Parker and the tiger, and all the way at the end, he's telling the story to the crazy journalist who doesn't believe in God, and, and then it's like, well, I don't, well, wait, so was that a tiger, or was that, were those people, or maybe it was, and here's the, well, well uh, 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 uh. right, that can be really frustrating when it's either left to your interpretation, or when somehow the end, you totally miss it. Maybe you're like me and, you know, enjoy sports and, you know, schedule's busy and you got meetings and that sort of thing. So sometimes in the evenings, you know, you try and record a game and you got that on the DVR and you're watching it. And this has happened to me a number of times where, you know, you're like watching that DVR and like what's left and it's getting smaller and smaller and like, oh no. Oh, no, you better not do that to me, AT&T. You better not do that to me. And then they call another timeout, and it's a tie game, and it's the final drive, and like, guys, back, and the football's up in the air, and then all of a sudden it freezes. I have missed the end of this stinking game. I just wasted two hours of my life. Been there before? I think on any live sport, they should kind of have the automatic, like, extended by 30 or 45 minutes, like, built into the system, Amen. Not like make you go in and try and like, yes, extend it for 30 minutes. But that's frustrating when you don't know the end. And what we're talking about here this morning as the final message in our thread series is what's going to happen at the end of the story. If you're new with us this morning, and I've met several families already, welcome. Thank you guys for being with us. Today is the last message in what has been a series that started all the way in the beginning of October. So we've been rocking for about eight months or so with a little bit of breaks in between on this whole series that is called Thread. And the idea behind this series is that we are going to go through the entire span of Scripture, starting all the way in Genesis and ending today with Revelation, the entire story of God. Because as we think about it, it's several thousand years that Scripture's been written uh, through the course of many, many authors and lots of different time frames. And yet deep down, as you look at the overview from God's perspective, it is one 
big, grand story. And so we've been tracing through the hints and the shadows, even in the Old Testament, how they relate to Jesus and who he is and how he is the thread that ties all of these different stories together. And our challenge each week at the end has been, okay, well, this is God's grand story. This is the upper story. This is the lower story, the narrative that we're in that particular week. And we've talked about Noah, and we've talked about David, and we've talked about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and we've talked about all these different characters and stories and how that's the lower story. This is what God was doing at that time frame. But then we talked about my story. What does that mean to me? Where do I play a part in this grand story of God, or do I even play a part? Am I just a reader? Am I just a watcher? Am I just taking all this in? Or is there something that God wants from me? So if you missed any of that, those are all online. And if you got a big, you know, 15-hour road trip driving up to the top of the upper peninsula of Michigan or something like that, you can probably get through a big chunk of them. They're all on there. If you didn't listen to them, if you missed a few weeks, I encourage you to, to dive in. But today is the very last one. We are talking about the end of the story. I invite you to turn in your copy of Scripture to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. It was funny because I was talking to Autumn, my 14-year-old daughter, this week, and she said, Dad, what are you preaching on Sunday? I said, well, we're talking about the end of the story um, and, and the threat of Jesus and how he's even present. This is our culmination and this is going to be glorious. She's like, Dad, well, you really need to make it good. I'm like being resized by your 14-year-old daughter. She's like, really, though, you really need to make it good. We've got all these students. They just came back from Lake Ann next week, and they're all excited, and they're all fired up, so you really need to give us something good. <laughs> okay, honey, I'll try my best, I promise. But anyway, it's a, it's a message of excitement and anticipation and joy, and uh, let's go ahead and dive into the text here in 2 Peter chapter 3. This is where you can stay the whole entire time. I'll reference a few other verses, but I'll read them to you. Here's what it says. This is Peter writing to the people that he loves. Now this is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. You know that they're important to him when he calls them the beloved, right? You only get that at the funerals and the weddings, but here it is. Peter says, in both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of a reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is this promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, Peter's saying, now listen, I want to encourage you guys. Be aware of all the prophecies. Remember what Jesus said. This is in the early church age, okay? This was years after Jesus had risen from the dead and had ascended back to heaven. What did he say? I will come back for you. I will return for you and make all things right. And Peter, along with many of the other early church fathers and these young Christians who just started following this movement called The Way, we're waiting and anticipating and, okay, he's going to be coming any day now. He's going to be coming back. He's going to be rescuing us. He's going to be setting up his kingdom. I can't wait any day now. But even then, even 2,000 years ago, just like now, there was scoffers. 
there were critics and cynics lined up. Oh, where's this Jesus? Oh, where's this God? Doesn't look like the world's getting a whole lot better. He's forgotten about you. And Peter's saying, they're going to come. Doubters are going to come. But I want you to hold fast to these prophecies. Remember them. Wait for them. Anticipate them. Skip down to verse 8. Check this out. Peter says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. There you get it again, the double shot of beloved. He loved these people. He says, don't overlook this one fact, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Verse 9, this is huge. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So all of a sudden we get a whole new perspective on this thing. It's not, oh, God's busy, oh, God's forgotten about us, oh, God's working on something else. What Peter is saying is, hey, listen, people that I love, people that are suffering, people that are being persecuted, I want to remind you that God's timing isn't the same as ours. And we can see that now because here we are 2,000 years later. It says 1,000 years is like one day. So in God's economy, according to that, this was pretty much written on um, Friday of the week, right? You see what I'm saying? But Peter's saying, hey, listen, don't worry. Listen, God, it may seem like he's delaying. It may seem like he's forgotten about you and your sufferings. But listen, the Lord is being patient because he wants everyone to have a chance to come to repentance. That is huge for us. God is up there and he's ready to come down and he wants to come down, but he's being patient. My work down there is not done yet. I want to give more people an opportunity to understand my love, to feel my love, to experience my love and forgiveness. That's why I'm delaying. So with that in mind, we have a huge question that Peter throws out in verse 11. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, in other words, since the world's going to be going to be burned up here since all this is happening what sort of people ought you to be and that's the question that we want to answer here this morning for northwest community church for our visitors if you believe in jesus if you belong to jesus if you're looking forward to being with him at the end of the story the question now is well what kind of people should we be today I've got three quick points that we want to um, talk about here as characteristics of what it means to be living for then and not for now. And the first one is the idea that says we need to be confident in the afterlife. We need to be confident in the afterlife. It says in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11, he has set eternity on the heart of man. So somewhere deep down inside, we recognize that what we're living these times, these days, these hours in our lifetime is not all there is. We know deep down inside there's something way deeper, way bigger, way grander than that. God has set eternity in our hearts. And we catch glimpses of the goodness of that, don't we? 
Man, when I have people over in my house and we're sitting at our table and we're enjoying a nice big steak and we're having belly laughter because we're telling stories and there's friendship and these people that I love. There's something about those key moments that are just like, man, I wish this could last forever. Man, I can't wait for this to last forever. Because there's something so disappointing about saying goodbye at the end of a night like that. We catch glimpses of eternity in our friendships, in our relationships, in our experiences. How I wish that we could be the people that are so confident in what's going to happen then that it affects our life now. I look at like somebody like the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2 who gave us that incredible phrase, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, to live is Christ. I want to be here with you guys. I desire it so deeply. And which one I am going to you know, desire more, I can't really tell because I love you. I love people. But man, this world is so broken. This world is so twisted. And this world is so disappointing. Man, to die and be with Jesus, that is way better. How should we live if we know that this is coming? Man, how that would change our perspective. We said, you know what? I'm not guaranteed that I'm going to live to be 75 or 80 or 85 years old. And Psalm 139 says every single day in our book is already mapped out. And I don't know how many days that's going to be. Right? In the New Testament in Scripture, I believe it's James, he says our life is but like a mere vapor that's there and that it's gone. What kind of people should we be if we believe that we're going to be reunited with Jesus? We should be the kind of people that Paul was. That said, you know what, I don't, I don't take my life as account to anything. Like the early church fathers were. Like Peter was. Like so many of the disciples. Eleven out of the twelve gave their life as a martyr. And John was exiled on an island until he was an old man. So all twelve of them were like, well, my hope's not in this life. My hope is in that life. Amen? What kind of people should we be when doubts arise, when scoffers come up, when people make fun of, oh, you believe Jesus is going to come back like Superman and rescue everybody out of this world? What kind of people should I be? Throw this comment out to you. We talk about being confident in the afterlife. And we talk about our hope not being in this life. When we approach trials and heartaches and disappointments when we take a look at how broken this world truly is how we could have the um, perspective that says man how I respond to a tragedy how I respond when my life is rocked with an illness with a cancer with a with some sort of um, difficulty and tragedy of unspeakable nature when that happens how I respond is everything because when the heart is exposed, you've got such a platform. People are watching you. People will listen to you more when they know that you've had a difficult time in a difficult situation. How we could be the kind of people, how I wish that God would stir us up to be the kind of people and what Peter's saying uh, to these people is, man, I wish we could be the kind of people that are kingdom-minded so that we can leverage things in this world for the good and bad, for the glory of God. 
Second idea that we see, what kind of people should we be? How do we respond? The idea of being generous in this life. It's not just being confident what's going on there, but it's okay right now, which I know that I'm not going to be able to keep any of this stuff. I need to be generous and open-handed and bring God's kingdom of goodness and sharing and generosity down to the earth right now. Brian talked about this a couple weeks ago when he talked about Acts chapter 2, right? When he talked about the early church and how they freely gave and freely shared, they didn't put their value in possessions. They had the perspective that said all of this belongs to God, so if somebody needs it, it's not mine, it's yours, and I'm living for your kingdom, so these are all somehow kingdom resources, so if I can share something with someone to make a difference, I want to freely do that, because I believe in a God that's big enough to provide my needs. I came across this quote by a guy named John Piper who mentioned one of the biggest tragedies that we see in life in relation to this um, worldly living versus kingdom living. Listen to what he said. He said, the tragedy is that Satan uses the guilt of failure to strip you of every radical dream that you ever had or might have, and in its place gives you a happy, safe, secure American life of superficial pleasures until you die in your lakeside rocking chair, wrinkled and useless, leaving a big fat inheritance to your middle-aged children to confirm them in their worldliness. And I read that sentence, I went, wait, wait, what? Like I had to read it like three times to gather the weight of what he was saying. And he was saying the huge tragedy in life is among Americans, we've been given so much time. Many of us have been given so many resources. And the big tragedy is you abandon your dream of making a kingdom impact. And instead, you want to make a my kingdom impact. And so you're saving up all of your money and you're doing all this stuff. And you sit one day on a rocking chair watching the sunset go down on your life. And you've got a big, huge, fat bank account, and when you die, that's going to do nothing but confirm the worldliness of your middle-aged children. <laughs> that's crazy, right? But people that are living for the kingdom are generous, they're not selfish. Is there a time for providing your, for your family? Absolutely, of course there is. But man, what he's talking about is what you see in Matthew chapter 6, even with Jesus, right? Who said, hey, don't store up for yourself lots of treasures here on the earth where moth and rust are going to destroy or thieves are going to break in and steal. Instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And the way you do that is by taking these treasures and using them on earth for God's kingdom there. You may say, well, I, I know, you know where my money's going. I trust my children. how you leave all your money to your son or your daughter and then they marry somebody who's crazy and decide to invest all your life savings in this big inheritance that we've gotten on you know pokemon go stock did i just say that out loud because it's a huge craze it's so great and then it's just gonna where'd all that money go or 2000 2008 2009 happens again and virtually overnight Hundreds of billions 
of dollars just absolutely disappear. Or you're given some sort of life-threatening illness that just completely zaps all of your bank account that you had all your faith and your trust in. God's people need to be generous. Look at what it says in verse 12, 2 Peter chapter 3. We're waiting for and we're hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and all the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What Peter's saying there is, you know what? It's all going to burn anyway. The entire earth and all of our possessions, it's all going to rust and it's all ultimately going to burn. So the way you react now, what kind of people you should be now, is going to affect everything over there. And I want to highlight a phrase in here that just absolutely popped out at me. This week, as I was pouring over this text, I don't ever remember reading it before, and I'm a pastor, I read the Bible a fair amount, right? But I want you to underline something. Look here in verse 12. There's two dynamics for what we're talking about. It says, waiting and hastening the coming of the day of God. Waiting and hastening. And we know what waiting is because, you know, you wait at the doctor's office and you wait for the restaurant and you wait at a red light and it's very passive and you're sitting here and you're waiting. And there's an element of that that we do, okay, Jesus, when are you going to come back? You know, everybody's saying you're not going to come back. We're waiting. But what kind of people should we be? Not just waiting, but hastening the day of God. And that's just a fancy pants old word that means hurrying up the day of God. Allowing it to come quicker. So somehow according to this there's something I can do and you can do as we're waiting for the end of the story to finally happen. There's something we can do to be expecting it. There's something we can do to hurry it up. It's called actively waiting. Actively waiting waiting you catch a glimpse of it here and we see the true culmination of it in the final point that we want to make here this morning the third kind of people that we need to be is the kind of people that are longing for restoration the kind of people that are longing for that restoration We've talked about the four elements of this grand story where it was relationship with God in the garden and then sin happened in Genesis chapter 3 and then redemption happened at the cross where Jesus with his blood, a sinless man came down and paid the price and bought us back into fellowship with him. And the final movement is restoration. And if you're a believer here this morning, if you followed Jesus and made that decision and chased after him and understood his grace and, and responded when he called you and you believe in him and you trust in him, there's certainly a partial restoration. God's restored our life. He's given us a new value. 
in the kingdom. We're, we're a tool to be used by God now. He's restored a lot of things for us. He's maybe restored our family. There's certainly a part of that. That's restoration. But man, we're looking to that day when complete culmination of that idea of restoration will take place at the end of the story. And in Revelation chapter 19 is where you see what we're all leaning towards, what we're all hoping for. And it's an incredible, key, powerful moment. And if I were to talk to each one of you here, many of you, and say, man, what is the most powerful moment? What, what in your life is one of the most important days of your life that you really can remember and look forward to? And like, that's just, man, that's just a moment that you will remember forever. Maybe for some it would be, you know, the day that you accepted Christ. Maybe for many it would be the day that I had a child and heard that child scream for the first time and how glorious that was. And maybe for some, probably for many who are married here, you would say, man, that day that I got married. Revelation chapter 19 culminates what's been hinted at so many other times through scripture. That really this is one big fat love story. You see that in the Old Testament. You see Israel personified as a, as a jilted lover. And God's hurt by that, a God who hurts, a God who feels betrayed, a God who is exemplified, even it says, by jealousy, because he loves his people so much and wants to be connected to them in a love relationship. You see that in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 5, right? You can't even go to a wedding without hearing that about, hey, therefore a husband should leave his father and mother and be united with his wife and they too shall become one flesh but Paul says oh this mystery is great by the way but I'm not even talking about what you humans do down there that's nice and that's lovely and the act of marriage and all that that's good I created that by the way a lot of fun but I'm not even talking about that he says he says what I'm talking about is Christ and the church and in Revelation chapter 19, there's going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb, this big culmination, this huge, amazing moment when we're going to be connected with Jesus in an incredible way that's never been seen before. But we catch glimpses of that here on earth, don't we? When we think about weddings, when we think about engagements, that moment, we've seen it, it's beautiful. I'm up there, ones that I've officiated at, and I see... The, the groom there and I see those doors open and I see the bride come down and I see that moment and you feel that moment and everybody's expecting to have a moment right a lot of you ladies and a couple gentlemen perhaps will pull out your tissues at that moment right why do you have tissues because I'm going to a wedding there's something about that moment that's transcendent that says this is going to be two people dedicated to each other, falling in love with each other, committed to each other, and hopefully, ideally, living forever together. And that's a beautiful moment. But what we don't remember a lot of times is there's a whole lot of other things that go on behind the scenes before you reach that moment. There's a whole lot of chaos, there's a whole lot of planning, there's a whole lot of work to be done before you reach that moment. And what's interesting about our modern weddings is, you know, all the, all the work seems to be done by the bride and by the mother of the bride, right? Once that engagement happens, once she says yes and whatever, what's the very first thing that you do next? 
somehow you got to pick a date, right? All right, well, let's think about this. You know, yeah, I got, married, I got engaged on Christmas Eve in, uh, in, in 1997. Got that right? I got engaged on Christmas Eve, and within a week, what did we have to be solidified on? Okay, well, when is this date going to be? All right, June 13th, 1998. That's the date. Okay, we got six months. Okay, good. And you know how it is, Manny. Uh, once you get that date out there, it's like you don't hear about anything else about, except that date. Right, and there's all these questions that come in, all right, well, who's the DJ going to be, and who's going to officiate, and where are we going to have it, and what are we going to have for the reception, what are we going to do for the rehearsal dinner, who's going to be in the wedding party, who are the bridesmaids and groomsmen, how's everybody going to walk in, how's the bride going to come in, if we can do anything unique or creative, I mean, anymore, you got to have a hashtag for your wedding, that's kind of the new thing, so what's our hashtag going to be, and where's it going to have our reception, how are the, you know, wedding party going to come in, are we going to dance around like they did on that one YouTube video, what are we going to do? And there's all this crazy planning and all this stress and everything leading up to that one moment. And so much of that has to do with the bride and the mother of the bride. They're largely making all those decisions, carrying all that weight, right? What does the groom carry? Man, you just got to show up. Right? That's pretty much it. My, my little secret that I tell guys that are engaged, I'm like, look, you know, your fiance is going to be asking you about 8,000 questions about plates and about doilies and about decorations and about invitations i'm like it's not gonna work to say i don't know or i don't care you just be decisive just pick one or the other it doesn't matter which one but this way she thinks that you're really into it and you're engaged in the process and you don't look like the lame fiance right i didn't share my secret yes i did even that's true to this day no, but those two take everything. They get all the importance in our modern weddings, right? The mother of the bride, you know, sometimes she'll even have her own attendant. Like she's queen for the day. Have you been there and seen that? You know what I'm talking about? Somebody's there fanning her and feeding her grapes. And mother of the bride. And the bride, of course, she's got her own little attendants. And like everything's about her and it should be. And that's great. Even the father of the bride is given a lot of honor at that celebration, right? There's been a whole uh, movie enterprise made on that whole idea about the father of the bride, right? And really, he only has four words to say. It's, you know, her mother and I. <laughs> Who gives this bride to be married? Uh, her mother and I, right? But he gets special treatment. You know who gets completely forgotten and ignored in the modern wedding, the father of the groom. You don't see that movie franchise going anywhere, do you? Because the general attitude is kind of like, yeah, well, it's time to get married. Let's go. Son, go do it, you know? But everybody else gets on. I mean, you know, the father of the groom kind of comes, you know, even after the, the, the mother of the groom and, and the mother of the bride and everything he's kind of like just walking behind nobody's escorting him down you know he gets some seat way off to the side he gets nothing but what if i told you in the jewish wedding tradition the father of the groom was everything 
What if I told you in the Jewish wedding tradition that when uh, a young couple began to fall in love, or they were largely arranged marriages, but I'm a father and I've got a son, and I see some lovely young lass over there that I think would be great. I work something out, and yet, okay, so you're going to get engaged. This is going to be your wife. You're my son. This is going to be your wife. You know what the engagement looked like? You know what the, the, the uh, groom had to do to, to win over the affection of a lady? He had to give her a glass of wine. No wedding rings, no engagement rings, no thousands of dollars. It was, here's some Pinot Noir. I am offering this to you so that you can accept and spend your life with me. That's what it was. And that's called being betrothed. You've heard of that with Joseph and Mary, right? That's what happened. And it was legally binding. It wasn't just like getting engaged, that's important, but there's not a legally binding situation with that. Being betrothed was different. That's basically saying everybody's recognizing that you're married, it's done, it's legal. But here's what happens. Once she accepts that and they're betrothed, they're separated for eight months, ten months, a year, a year and a half. And what happens is the son goes back to his father's house and the father has arranged that the son is going to build a room on the side of his house and that's where they're going to live. Any young uh, husbands and wives excited about that? <laughs> Let's go live with mom and dad. It'll be great. Well, that's what they did. And the son was responsible, whether he was a carpenter or not, to build this house to the exact specifications of what the father said. He wanted it to be great. He wanted it to be amazing. He wanted it to be ornate. And he could not get married until he finished building that room. And imagine the difference in the modern wedding and in that culture where the bride and the bride's mom had no idea when the wedding was going to be. 100% of the authority rested on the father of the groom. So you can imagine maybe, you know, he would do a small little room and like they would cut some corners and get a tin roof on there or something. Or maybe the father said, nope, I want this to be ornate. I want this to be big and amazing. I want it to be incredible. So lots more, lots more, you know. And are we done yet? What about some wainscoting? Nope, I don't know. Wood floors, you got to refinish them, you know. Like that it just kept on going and going and going and going until finally the father said, it's done. It's time. Go get your bride. And at that very moment, he would travel to go see her, hadn't seen her in a year, and he would rescue her, he would pick her up, largely this was done at nighttime, he would knock on the window, and he would grab her, and they would get married like the next day, and then a seven day celebration and feast, and all the friends and family were there, and it was incredible. That's the way they did it. Well, so what, preacher? What does this have to do with anything? Well, when we're talking about the final days, when we're talking about the marriage of the wedding supper of the Lamb, when we're talking about that thread of Jesus that goes through everything and weaves through even traditions and, and stories in Scripture, now all of a sudden we see that maybe it makes a little bit of sense. 
Because here was Jesus in one of his final weeks of his life, and he was talking to his disciples in John chapter 14, and he said, let not your heart be troubled. He had just told them, hey, I'm going away. You know, I, I've, I've modeled for you. I've shown you what to do, but now I'm going away. And they said, what are you talking about? Where you, you can't leave us? What are you talking about? And Jesus says, listen, in my Father's house there are many rooms and if it were not so, I would have told you. I am going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be also. And all of a sudden, it was becoming clear. They knew exactly what he was talking about. Well, Jesus is leaving and he's going to prepare something and build something and then he's going to come back we don't know when he's going to come back but he's going to come back and he's going to bring us to be there with him in fellowship in joy in relationship once again and then later on in matthew chapter 24 again towards the tail end of jesus life jesus says uh, you know when when is this day going to come when are you going to come back and jesus says no man knows the hour not even the son. And they're like, wait, what? You're Jesus, you're sovereign, you know all things. What do you mean you don't even know? How do you wrestle with that text? Well, when he's talking about marriage, he says, hey, not even the son knows. Only the father knows when the time to come back will be. So this final point of longing for restoration carries along the idea of actively waiting where are we right now in this scene where are we right now in this story we're right there where their disciples were okay jesus you're gone you're building a a room for us and you're you're going to come back and you're, you're going to bring us there okay so what do we do do we sit here and wait think about the context no you're actively waiting even for that bride she didn't know when he was going to come but guess what every night she put a lamp out on her window i am here i am waiting i am ready my bags are packed all of my bridesmaids are ready for whenever you're going to come. I'm waiting for it, but I'm not just sitting around. I've been preparing myself, and I don't want to be caught off guard. Jesus told a whole nother parable about that, right? With the foolish virgins, uh, the single young girls that, that were not ready when the groom finally came. And so here we see this whole idea of actively waiting. We don't know the time, we don't know the hour, but what we do know is it's going to be incredible. As you look at the book of Revelation, chapter 21, what is this moment going to be? What is it going to feel like? What are we going to experience? Well, in the same way, the anticipation of a wedding all is concerned with that moment where you fix your gaze on your bride. And in Revelation, you see that moment where we see Jesus finally face to face what a day of rejoicing that will be let me just read this text to you as we prepare to close john says then i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more and then I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, a dwelling place of God is with man. 
he will dwell with them and they will be his people. Listen to this. And God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain or any more for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So man, for us as a people, what if we could have that attitude that says, I'm watching, I'm waiting, I'm ready, my lamp is lit, I'm prepared, and I can't wait for that moment. But at the same time, I'm actively waiting. I'm working in that context. Remember, the son didn't know either. So he's there pounding stuff in. Is it ready yet? Is it time yet? He's working, and it was only at the father's bidding that he would come. Scripture says we can speed that up. We can see Jesus come. We look around, and it's broken, and it's difficult, and there's death, and there's destruction, and there's disappointment. God saying, yep, I'm there, but I'm just I'm being patient. I want more to come to repentance. Because my kingdom up here is amazing, but man, there's elements of this kingdom up here that you can show down there. So when we watch the news night after night, when we interact with people, when we see sorrow and, and brokenheartedness, it's not our job to just say, okay, Lord Jesus, please come. Will you just get us out of here? Just zap us away and take us away from this evil world before your justice rains down. It's more of saying, okay, God, let me start acting in kingdom living down here right now. Let me do what you did because you came and you said, behold, the kingdom of God is here. There's a new way of doing things. There's a new way of giving. There's a new way of feeling. There's a new way of empathy. There's a new way of justice. And for this moment, God has made us, the church, as the carrier of that. So the more active we are and the more we share and the more we talk about Christ, the day is coming ever closer as we can hasten this great marriage. I don't know where that lands on you here this morning. I don't know if for some of you and you're looking at your life and you're like, all right, how should we then live? Well, man, I... I don't know, I look at those points and you know, maybe for some of you you're saying, I'm not confident in the afterlife. This whole idea about the story of God and what he did for us and accepting it and becoming his son or his daughter, just that really doesn't resonate, man. I'm not even sure that, that I belong to God. Maybe for you this morning, this could be the beginning of your story, the beginning of your redemption. New life can happen this morning. And I'll be down here after and I'd love to talk to you about that and pray with you. Maybe for some of you, you're saying, you know, and I'm not generous in this life. I'm a hoarder in this life. I've been so tight-fisted on all of my possessions and all of my money and all of my time. And I need to, man, act differently. And I need to be a different kind of person in light of what's coming. And maybe for many, you're longing for that restoration. There's hurt, there's damage, there's brokenness, there's sorrow. You can't wait till Jesus wipes away the tear from your eyes. And I feel that ache as well and that longing as well. But in the meantime, God has created us with each other. To embrace each other, to love each other, to cry with each other, to weep with each other, to laugh with each other, and to stand with each other. 
we look forward to that great restoration. Let's pray together. Jesus, we love you. Can't wait, God, to see you face to face. Can't wait till this world is over. Can't wait till your justice swoops down and eradicates evil once and for all. God, I can't wait to be there around the throne with your tree of life and the fruits of the tree of life bringing healing to the nations. Lord, you're going to bring healing to Germany and to Syria and to France and to our country. And Lord, all things will be made right. We love you for that, God, and we look for that day. And that's our assurance. Remind us of that, God. In your precious son, Jesus' name.